You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon and welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark Lonsborough. I am Programme Manager in the Creative Learning and Development strand of our work here in the Action Research Centre at the RSA. It's my great pleasure to introduce this afternoon's guest speaker, Oliver James. Uh, Oliver is a chartered psychologist and psychotherapist. He's worked as a writer, uh, focusing uh, particularly on emotional health and within families and work. Uh, he's a journalist with columns in most of the national newspapers over the year, but particularly The Guardian and The Observer. And he's had a career as a broadcaster, a television documentary producer and presenter. Oliver's here today to talk about why our upbringing, and not, very definitely not, our genes, play such an important role in our well-being and success. Now, this extends a debate about the importance of behavioural psychology for us as individuals, and it also puts an emphasis on the potential for individuals to make change happen, both in their lives and the lives of others. And so I think that's particularly crucial and particularly important for the RSA and our power to create a mission. So our question for today is, what makes us who we are? Now, I'm sure this, uh, this question will open up many avenues for discussion and debate. So after, uh, after Oliver's opening remarks, we've got plenty of time for your comments and your questions before we wrap up the event at 2 o'clock. So please join me in welcoming Oliver James. Thank you. You, you can all see me okay, yeah. Um, could you possibly turn down these? It's like being in the sort of glare of the full headlamps. Um, t- yes, that's great. Thank you. Um, just start very quickly with uh, a clip which is somewhat contrary to a lot of what I'm going to be saying, it seems. And um, uh, it's really about the fact that when I was young, about the only thing I ever excelled at was dribbling footballs. And rather curiously, my now 11-year-old son and my 14-year-old daughter were both very good at that. And uh, this clip... What you're seeing is, is a clip of my son dribbling a football, but also him interviewing me, which he, I hasten to add, it was at his instigation. And clearly he's, you'll see that his desire to become a barrister in later life perhaps um, <laughs> is illustrated by this. I haven't been able to dribble a football for a great many years. I've actually got mild multiple sclerosis, but thank God it's mild. But uh, I've had it for about 30 years, so dribbling footballs is, is not something he could ever have witnessed me do. Oliver James, Oliver James, is it true that when you were young you used to dribble exactly like me? Uh, pretty much true, yeah. Okay. And is it true that you're disabled and I've never seen you play? It is true. And is it true I've never seen a photo or a video of you playing football? That is correct. So, you could... No, I couldn't. Um, so, you ha- have to admit now that I dribble exactly like you, yet you've never... S- yet I've never, ever, ever seen you do it. Do you play football? Yeah. So, is it true that... That came from genes? No. Why so? Uh, That's all we need. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is that it does seem pretty unlikely that that skill, at least wholly, was passed down through genes. Um, it's true that the Human Genome Project, which has been going for 16 years and 
where the, the, the human genome was set out in 2000, they'd found all the genes. Uh, and uh, since then, they have been able to find genes which have a significant effect on physical traits, anatomical ones like height or eye colour. Remarkably low, actually, the heritabilities they found compared to what they expected. But nonetheless, they have found them, significant ones. But where I'm starting from is, is, is something that I'm about to say, which is you know, very hard to take on board. It's, it's people, most people find it very difficult to, to, to even comprehend what I'm saying. But, but what I, just to be absolutely clear, what I'm saying is that it is not my opinion, it is a fact that they have not been able to find significant heritabilities for psychological traits like intelligence like mental, any mental illness, and personality traits. To explain the huge gulf that exists between the, well not explained, but to characterise it, gulf between twin study and adoption study heritabilities, which for something like intelligence, for example, are 50%, and the findings of the Human Genome Project, which are around about 1% to 5%. So they can find genetic variants, but they only account for a tiny amount of the variants. They use this phrase, the missing heritability, or they used to call it the DNA deficit. And indeed, uh, um, any of you who heard uh, the radio program was on last Monday week, uh, the the new story apparently is, instead of calling it missing heritability, they now want to call it the hidden heritability. Um, it's not my opinion, it's the, the, the person I respect most in this field is a chap called Robert Plowman, who used to be at the Maudsley and, uh, and is now at King's College. Robert told The Guardian last week, quote, I have been looking for these genes, ones that have a significant effect on psychological traits, I've been looking for these genes for, for, for 15 years, I don't have any. So, having made that statement to you, I think it's always interesting to do this, is just to go quickly ask for a show of hands here. Uh, most intelligent people, in my experience, to, I don't want to insult anybody by saying this, but <laughs> um, uh, most educated people, shall I say, uh, tend, to, and tend to come from their own experience as well as what they've read, uh, and, and from sort of first principles, and because we've all been taught about Darwin and all the rest of it, to assume that it's a bit of both. So it's got to be, surely we're born with genetic potentialities which are then either realised or not as a result of the environment we're in. And uh, it's interesting, who in this room would say, in other words, let's say go for 50-50 or 60-40, something or, you know, either way, 60-40, uh, for the role of genes and overall, because obviously it's going to vary from trait to trait. I mean, there are some traits where they haven't found any heritability at all in twin studies. But overall, who would go for... Put your hand up if, if, you, if you're what, I, what I'm calling a bit of both person. Yeah, nearly everyone. Um, there'll be a, a tiny number of people who'll say, yes, you're right, genes play very little role, and there'll be a small number of people who say it's, it's very largely genes. One of, one of my cleverest friends is a chap called Edward St. Aubin who wrote some wonderful novels called the, the Melrose Novels. I once sat Teddy down and, and said, OK, I'm going to explain the evidence to you. And I explained it to him for about half an hour, and he's quite interested in science. 
Uh, and he has always said, no, you're, everybody's born with a bit of you know, something in them, and that's a significant part of why we're like we are. And I explained all the evidence to him, and in great detail, what I said at the outset, that it's only... It's, it's, it's 95 to 99% not genes, according to the evidence so far. And at the end of this half hour, I said to him, so, have I altered your opinion in any way? And he said, no, not at all. <laughs> so I'm not really expecting when we do the show of hands at the end that you're going to be saying anything very different. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, there was, they're now using enormous samples they have very, very advanced technology and can look at all kinds of different kinds of genetic variants. And in looking for what are called SNPs, which I won't even try and remember, single nucleotide polymorphisms, that's what they're called, um, uh, a, uh, which is the sort of, was presented by Robert Plomian and many others as being the gold star. It was going to be, it was going to be the, the, the gold standard for genetic studies. Um, they looked at the genes on hundreds of thousands of locations in all the likeliest places, since only about 2% of the genome is, is genes which code for, for, pro, for amino acids, which code for proteins, which is the model that we were told is how genes work. Um, hundreds of thousands of locations. And on 37,000 schizophrenics, I mean, that is a socking great sample. And compared what they found in the genes of the schizophrenics with 110,000 normal people, or not schizophrenic people. Uh, they could find 108 variants uh, in which, they were, which were commoner in the schizophrenics compared with the not schizophrenics. Um, some of those variants actually haven't been replicated, and yet, you know, again and again and again, these studies get published in the press or on, on the Today program. It turns out they're not replicated. Uh, but be that as it may, let's say all 108 variants were true. They explained only 3% of the variants. In other words, that study, which was hailed on the Today program as a huge breakthrough by Tom Fielden, um, the science correspondent, uh, 97%, that study seemed to show, 97% taken at face value of uh, the cause of schizophrenia is not genes. That would seem to be the implication of that study. Um, we've been told all our adult lives that there's going to be genes for depression, schi uh, schizophrenia, but, but the gay gene for intelligence and so on. And of course, what they found, uh, you know, uh, very early on was that they couldn't find any specific genes for anything at all, uh, apart from in physical illnesses. They did find some, for example, for example breast cancer. Um, but, I mean, in the case of depression, for instance, they can't even find any variants. At least in schizophrenia, the 108 variants account for a tiny, a tiny 3% of, the, of, the, of schizophrenia. It's very hard to take what I'm saying on board, and, and obviously what you're going to be thinking, the next thing you're going to be thinking is, well, hang on a second, mate, you know, um, you've, got, you've, got, you know you've got you're grinding your axe here, you're just, okay, maybe, maybe I can accept, I mean, I can send you, any of you who are interested, the papers, very up-to-date papers, where it is still accepted that there is this missing heritability. Um, but you must, you're bound to be thinking, well, surely 
okay, that, you know, they've only had 16 years looking. Well, actually, that's quite a long time, and they've had huge budgets compared to what social science has. Billions of dollars have been spent on this. Um, and uh, you're thinking, well, there must be, you know, what about they're going to find something eventually, though, aren't they? Well, actually, no. I mean, if you talk to the molecular geneticists off the record, on the record, they would give a different story because they want to go on getting funded. But off the record, um, the story that they're now telling, which is a story that people like Marcel Manufo is telling, is that they're going to find... They haven't found them yet. He talks as if they have found them. They haven't. He claims they're going to find thousands of tiny variants which, when all added up together, will account for the missing heritability. Now, the reason the, missing, the, reason the molecular geneticists off the record say that's simply not true is because, it, for one thing, in order to do that, so tiny are the uh, effects of the variants that they would have to have absolutely enormous samples. Samples so big that it's almost unimaginable that, that this data would ever be gathered. And, and that leaves, and I, I've had that conversation with a professor of genetics who has said this to me and said, I still believe that the genes are there, but I don't believe we'll ever find them, but for the simple reason that we, we simply, it's simply not feasible to do a study. At which point you're kind of getting into a Karl Popperian unfalsifiable belief rather than um, science. I, I would maintain the best analogy for the situation for the geneticists at the moment is that it's like that time when you leave your mobile phone in the office but you're absolutely convinced you brought it home with you. And so you pat your coat, uh, you look in your pocket, um, you, you, you look on the table, you get the house phone and ring it and, and you're sure you left it on but there's no, no reply. Uh, the rest of the family are, are drawn into the, the search. Uh, you look behind the sofa, under the carpet, etc., etc. You start to look in more and more improbable places, places you've never been during the time since you got home. Um, and still there's no mobile phone. Now, some of the theories that, and it really is theories, that, that geneticists are, are, are beginning to demand research money and lots of it to research are not far off the, the person who's lost his mobile phone saying, well, you know, I've always had my doubts about ghosts. Uh, but, you know, you've got to keep an open mind, you know. And it's perfectly possible, perhaps, there is such a thing as a ghost. Who knows? Perhaps there is. Perhaps my, a ghost has borrowed it and it'll turn up. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty much at that level when they start talking about junk genes, you know, that the high proportion of, of the human genome is so-called junk. Uh, and yet junk genes cannot code for amino acids which code for proteins, so therefore cannot directly be causing particular states in the body. They can only be doing it very indirectly through junk genes switching protein coding genes on and off, and they haven't really found anything very significant there. The one area that I think remains genuinely up for grabs and it is... In uh, which you, the bit of both us here, of whom the great majority of you are, uh, will be relieved to hear that there is light at the end of the tunnel for you potentially, is what are called candidate genes. Now, uh, there's one in particular which 
got everyone very, very excited when it was first published, the paper on what's called the serotonin transportogy, where if you had certain variants of it, and if you were abused, you were much more likely, if you were maltreated in childhood, you were much more likely in later life to become depressed, to smoke dope, uh, and various other, um, well, uh, unfortunate outcomes. Um, And... Uh, when that study was first published, people were very excited by it, and lots of other studies have been done since. And what do they find? Well, they find frequently. They don't replicate very frequently. However, there are plenty that do replicate, and so it's not, it's not, it's not cut and dried. You know, the ball's still in play, if you like, on, on that gene. Uh, on the so-called warrior gene, it's pretty much not in play anymore. Uh, so the MAORI gene, uh, they uh, have not had any joy really with the replication or not much not enough joy uh if you look at the meta-analyses of that again if you want i can send you any anything if you ask me just email me afterwards um the mori gene there was a huge meta-analysis done recently which, which really does draw a blank none of what i've said so far i'm talking always here about the direct effect of variants in dna causing trait outcomes uh there are other studies which have been able to find some heritability, but they don't, well, they're not actually showing something... They're not able to identify specific genes which have specific outcomes. There's something called genome-wide, genome-wide um, complex trait analysis, which is essentially a sort of mathematical, very dodgy mathematical thing, which has recently been exposed as dodgy by a, a paper by someone called Kumar. Uh, and that did find 23% for schizophrenia and various other things. But the problem with it is it's just sort of like uh, tea leaves. It's basically like looking at tea leaves. They just look at, uh, you know, use mathematics to see if there are any differences in the sort of patterns between a group of schizophrenics and a group of not schizophrenics. And uh, interestingly, those studies are not cited by scientists very often. Uh, in support of anything to do with heritability because they're not able to find specific genetic variants which have specific outcomes. There is, of course, epigenetics, which many of you will have heard of and get excited about. Now, epigenetics is a more a hypothesis, I would say, at this point in terms of the science. A lot of it's based on animal studies. There are, of course, some human studies. and uh, But it, it's a bit of a misnomer. It's not really relevant to the question of why children are like their parents because uh, in terms of geneticism because what we're talking about here is environmental effects on chemicals in the body, particularly methyl, although that's actually all turning out to be very debatable but whether it's methyl or something else it's still there as a hypothesis that there are chemicals that can be affected by for example if you're maltreated in childhood that that can then lead you to switch certain genes on or others off, others off. But that's very much, remember, just a mechanism by which the environment affects outcomes. It's not... Uh, and that could be why my children can dribble, for example. It could be I spent so much time dribbling that my dribbling genes were switched on and that it was passed down to them in, in the chemicals. Let's, you know, suspend your disbelief for a moment and, and imagine then that... I'm right, and that 95 to 90... Let's say that when they've looked everywhere and they still haven't found anything of any significance, 
uh, it's still 95 to 99% not genes. Well, what's going on? You know, um, I mean, how can that be? Because it's, it is the case that physical traits are affected by genes, much less than was expected, but still they are. Um, how could that be? Well, for one thing, I would say a very simple point is, is that actually it makes an awful lot of sense in evolutionary terms for us to have been, been born very plastic. Because each family requires of each of us a different strategy for attracting the resources of parents. And so in evolutionary terms, to be born plastic uh, in terms of your psychology makes an awful lot of sense. For example, if you were born, let's say your mother was very shy and she wanted an outgoing child and you were born genetically shy, it would be much harder for you to attract her resources by being outgoing uh, if you've got a gene that's just saying be shy, be shy. Um, it, it actually doesn't make an awful lot of sense for us to be born, you know, with exceptional intelligence to parents who couldn't care less about that, um, to be born a very good dribbler to a father who's always hated dribbling. Um, it makes much more sense to be able to suck up to your parents by adapting who you are to whatever's needed. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, what I What I would say before I go on though is that I do I, you know the, 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 the clip with which we started I think is, is a good example and there are many others where I've no doubt in my mind that there is physical transmission of psychological traits from parents to children and a properly scientific view of all this would be to say well okay maybe it's not genes but maybe that doesn't mean it's all nurture and I would be, want to stress that. Uh, in the case of autism, for example, I have no doubt in my mind that there are children who are born with a brain abnormality that means they have the problems that autistic children have. Um, uh, it hasn't completely been shown, proven conclusively that that's true, but I suspect it will be. Um, and uh, why they've been born like that is up for grabs. It could have to do with what happens during the pregnancy. We know, for example, with ADHD, that if a mother is stressed in the last trimester of pregnancy, that her child is at greater risk of ADHD. We know the same, and significant odds ratios, you know, two or three times more likely. Same with if the baby is born preterm and, and, and low weight. Uh, big, big, some quite big odds ratios for ADHD, if that's the case. Uh, and quite exactly how that mechanism works is debatable. Uh, it could be that the child's born difficult so the mother doesn't tune into it so they get off on the wrong foot so that results in ADHD. could be that it's a physical thing. It's that the child, I mean, in the case of the last trimester, for example, there's no doubt that it's been proven that uh, the high cortisol fight-flight hormone that's secreted in response to threat uh, the high cortisol in the mother in the last trimester gets passed through the placenta into the fetus, the baby's born wired, and is much more likely subsequently to be conduct disordered or ADHD. So lots of different mechanisms there make the bit of both story begins to come in there. Uh, a third of babies are born difficult because of the pregnancy and birth. Nothing to do with uh, parents, way parents related to the child. Um, if you come to the evidence on nurture, all I can say to you is that during the 15 years that the human genome be, has been chundering along, 
it has been shown many, many times over that nurture is definitely very important. Uh, in the case of schizophrenia, for example, the uh, more kinds of maltreatment you've suffered and the more severe the maltreatment, the, the greater the likelihood of schizophrenia. It's a major cause of schizophrenia maltreatment. Uh, to take the most extreme study, uh, somebody who has had five or more kinds of maltreatment is 193 times more likely to be schizophrenic than someone who suffered no maltreatment. The best prospective longitudinal study that started at birth and moved forward to 18 found that 9 out of 10 of the children who'd been maltreated ended up with a mental illness at 18. This idea of resilience, I think, is going to turn out to be utter bulls. I don't think it's going to be uh, shown that the uh, children who you can just... Uh, mess with badly in their childhood and they turn out fine. Um, uh, that, I think that's a myth that was made up by the geneticists to kind of, you know, this idea that you can have brilliant people walking out of uh, sink estates with IQs of 160 coming from absolutely nowhere. Not any examples that I've ever heard of. Uh, and prodigies, likewise, all prodigies, as far as I know, every recorded case of a prodigy, they have been hothoused. So whether it comes to abilities or, uh, you know, an awful lot of underperformance uh, in academically and in careers is, is actually to do with uh, your childhood having set your electrochemical thermostat, as I would call it, uh, at a baseline level. The thermostatic setting is one where you're too anxious, too insecure, perhaps too lacking in self-confidence to be able to really deliver. Uh, what you would like to be able to do. The implications of all this are absolutely huge. Uh, if, if Imagine for a moment that I'm right. Uh, whilst it by no means necessarily means that we can all just be anything we want to be, uh, it does mean that there is much greater hope for the whole changing of society and us as individuals being able to change through therapy. Um, and uh, there is very good evidence that people... Who, uh, children who believe that their abilities are fixed at maths, if they're just given four lessons, this is a famous study, they're just given four lessons in the idea that they're not, their abilities are not fixed, the more that they believe that they were fixed before they started these lessons, the, the greater their improvement in maths two years later. But overall, they all improved in maths compared to control groups. That was a large study. Um, equally, for the mentally ill, believing you're mentally ill uh, is... Um, uh, you know, whether it's you or your family or the professionals caring for you, if they believe that it's a fixed mental illness, if they believe they buy into the story that that ghastly program a couple of weeks ago with Stephen Fry being told by a psychiatrist that he had an incurable illness for which there was only one solution, drugs, the drugs which were actually going to shorten his life, um, uh, you know, that is a disgrace. It should not be going on. Um, there are much better alternatives to that, and it's very unhelpful to Stephen to tell him that. Uh, Paulie Yates, who I worked with and who I discuss in my book in the second chapter, is somebody I, I know believed that she had inherited genes which meant she was doomed. And in fact, of course, it turned out that her biological father, she thought that she'd got this from her father, Jess, Jess Yates. And it turned out that, in fact, her, her, her actual 
birth father was Huey Green, not Jesse Yates at all. But her belief in the idea that she inherited these genes, I know, because she told me, uh, had a big effect on how she saw herself. Um, I've, I've actually written a book about David Bowie, uh, which would be coming out in May, uh, which is all about how he slayed his childhood demons and slayed, he had three mentally ill aunts on his mother's side and a, a half-brother who became very ill. Um, and uh, Bowie managed to overcome the belief that there was bad seed in the family, what his grandmother called the curse of this family, uh, through his music and through various personae. But that's a whole other story. I think the, the biggest implication I would, I would put to you of all that I've said is that what is passed down the generations is intergenerational patterns of nurture, patterns of very positive ones like humour. Uh, there are all sorts of things in my own family I can think of which I think of very fondly, and there are some things that I think of less fondly. Uh, all of us are in that position. Um, and these things are passed down through patterns of nurture, we are what I would call, we suffer from offspring Stockholm Syndrome. It's very hard for us to, you know, we're like, we're like uh, captives uh, in, in a siege, if you like, during our childhood with um, being kidnapped by our parents, and we do our best to try and suck up to them, and that's ultimately my argument as to how we become like them. It's through identification, modelling, but also through maltreatment. Uh, and I describe how Paula's daughter, Peaches, uh, had came to that terrible end uh, in the book because she was maltreated, particularly maltreated by Paula and compared with her sisters. If you swapped me with my three sisters at conception, I believe one of them would be sitting here now, not me. I was treated completely differently by my father purely because of what was between my legs when I was born. It will be true of all of you. The fact that you were born first, second, boy, girl, your parents' marriage was at this stage when one was born at that stage at another stage. We can change all this stuff. That's what I'm saying, is that you as an individual certainly can change. Therapy can work. CBT, not CBT, please, but uh, stuff that goes into your childhood, stuff that gives you a very solid relationship with, with, a, with, a, with a really uh, somebody who's really batting for you, gives you a different relationship platform from which to go forth into the world. Uh, we can change our society. My God, uh, I become speechless when I look at the society we're in today. Politicians play on our desire to improve our material circumstances in order to provide a more affluent life for our children. But if only we could see that once a basic level of material security has been achieved, it's far more important to pass love down the generations than property or stocks and shares. Thank you. Thank you very much, Oliver. Uh, my first question is actually about why, why do you think that this, this sense, uh, and maybe this sort of 60-40, 50-50 genes and nurture um, uh, sort of idea, oh, understanding of Oh, we didn't persists, do a or, show of hands. Who, oh, yeah. who thinks it's a bit of both still? Yeah, not many, not many, not many people convinced. Yeah. And, I mean, you touched on something which I think might be, for me, might be at the root of it, and that, that you say that, that you suspect that there's a, a, a biological component to to, to behavioural traits, yep. but but not a genetic one. And I just wanted to sort of 
pick that apart a little bit and, and try and understand what, what that biology is if it's not, if it's not genetic? Apart from uh, pregnancy and birth, uh, and obviously there are things like food, there are all sorts of other physical things like that. Uh, but uh, the great point I would make about this is, is that we, it's in the nature of us as human beings to be incredibly stupid in thinking that the way we see the world at any one time is, is the truth. Um, the history and philosophy of science, as, as many of you will know, you know anybody with, at all familiar with that, will know that it's very likely that in 100 or 200 years' time people will fall around laughing at the idea that we thought it was genes that were so important. Um, in the same way that we, well, don't fall around laughing, but certainly, well, Richard Dawkins slightly does, um, but, uh, you know, that a lot of people take, take a, you know, regarded as fairly laughable that we believed in religion so much, so many people did, in not so very long ago. Uh, so you have to, you know, take, take the long view uh, and say, well... You know, it's quite likely, not quite likely, it's really highly probable that there are all sorts of things going on that we've never even thought about. Uh, for an awful long time in the history of the world, nobody had any idea about electricity. You know. um, there's an awful lot of things that we just take for granted now, uh, which um, you know, nobody had any concept of before. And so uh, my, uh, my main answer to that question is to say, I think there's just something else going on. It's not genes. It turns out genes are not at all what they were cracked up to be. Okay, um, Okay. I did promise that that would be my one question, so I'm going to uh, throw it open to the audience. And the lady in the right, right in the middle in the sort of turquoise top, put your hand up first. Thank you. Uh, Elwyn Taylor Fellow, could you say something about plasticity? I'm thinking of the effect of therapy and positive nurture in later life. Yeah. Is plasticity the same at 60, 70 as it is at 6? <laughs> And, and actually, can I, can I add a supplement, supplementary point to that, a question about that? Uh, with my education he- head on, I'm particularly interested in, in the consequences of, of that plasticity and for, for an education system and, for, and within the RSA's sort of mission about developing the creativity of learners and the creativity of teachers and, and a sort of creative education. I think that uh, the amount of plasticity does depend on the degree of maltreatment when small. So... Uh, uh, referred earlier to my friend Teddy, somebody who was sexually abused as a child, on average, has about 5% less of the hippocampus and the amygdala regions of the brain. Now, that's a structural problem. Um, and, to what, you know, Teddy has worked incredibly hard to sort himself out and done a great job, but I think he'd be the first to say he's by no means cracked it. And uh, it may well be that it's, you know, there are limits placed by the degree of damage uh, and the earlier it's done, the, the evidence shows the worse, you know, the, the harder it is to deal with. Um, partly on from a psychotherapy point of view, that's obviously because it's pre-verbal. When you're dealing with the pre-verbal components of your client's problems, it's, it's that much harder. You, know, you need much more intensive, longer-term work to get at that. Stuff that arose as a result of perhaps your role in the family or just... Um, ideas that have been planted in you by your parents which are wrong those things are much more easily changed um, I think overall I think that it, whether it's easier to change a child than it is to change an adult I think on the whole it is easier to change a child, I think the plasticity is greater and I think there's good scientific evidence for that 
they're now extending childhood out into adolescence. There's all this stuff on adolescence, although it's actually not, it's quite ropey, that science, actually. But uh, certainly in the first six years, you know, the, a two-year-old has more brain, <coughs> brain cells than its mother. And uh, there's a huge process of pruning, pruning that goes on after two as the child kind of establishes the electrochemical thermostat. Uh, for a chap my age of 62, you know, um, it's quite difficult to get, to get stuck in your ways, etc. However, I had a personal experience of, of, of an astonishing level of change, which was my mother, um, after my father died in 1992, um, I won't say like Lady Bracknell did, that you know her hair went quite red with grief, but... Uh, because uh, I don't think it was quite like that, because I don't think she was, she was exactly punching the air and, and, and glad to see the back of him exactly. But there was something funny going on in their relationship because she really changed. I mean, it was extraordinary. You know, she'd been depressive all her life, and she stopped being depressive. Uh, she'd been rather self-preoccupied in certain respects, and that really ended. She became very wise. Um, amazing level of change. So I've seen it happen. Um, it can happen at any time. You know, I think that The Death of Ivan Illich uh, is a book which, if you haven't read it, read it, because it's saying, don't be lying on your deathbed with your family there thinking, I've never known these people, they all hate me. <laughs> you know, um, what have I done with my life? Uh, you know, it's never too late in that sense. On, on your point, uh, I think... That the, the short answer to that is, you know, there are so many models, examples now around the world that are so much better than the appalling state of our education system. And also, I would also say, our football uh, training as well. And Finland, of course, is the great example because it comes very high up every time in the, in the, in the international uh, league table. Yet, how does it achieve this? In a very different way from the Singaporeans who get literally beaten into getting good exam results. Um, in the case of Finland, they start from the premise that everybody has the potential to do well. And by well, they mean as well, you know, to get A stars. And uh, they get uh, incredible results. And they do it by pouring massive resources into it. And obviously, you know, picking up... Obviously, a key factor is that, the, you know, they've had, you know, 60 years of... of um, equal society, like all the Scandinavian societies, they haven't been destroyed like we have by Thatcherism and then Blatcherism. Uh, and so, of course, they, they have much more equal society, therefore they have fewer low-income people, therefore, you know, they, it, there are less sinker states and people who, are, who have gone for generations in the wrong direction. Um, and... You know, so, so obviously it would be a massive task to get our 66 million or whatever it is people to change direction. Uh, we've got into some jolly bad habits. It would be a massive task to change it. But I do not despair, you know, because if I'm old enough to remember living in the shadow of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, incredible the way that just disappeared in a puff of smoke. You know, massive changes can happen. Like I was saying about history and philosophy of science, uh, you know, we shouldn't always assume that just because things are like they are, they're going to stay like that way. We tend to. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've also seen Thatcherism come along, which was, to, to people like me, if you'd said in 1979 that there were going to be people wandering around saying they wanted to be Sloan Rangers and everyone would want to be an entrepreneur in, in only a few years' time, I would have laughed in your face. Uh, so, you know, think terrible things can happen like Thatcherism, but 
rather wonderful things like the end of the Soviet Union can happen too. This gentleman here. I'm unclear about the dribbling story. I don't oh, think yes. I kind of got the point. Okay. Are you saying that it's mere coincidence that you were both good at no. dribbling, or is it to do with the diet that you had? If it's not genetic, then I think what what, I, what, what, what's the, the reason? reason I, the reason I start there is to say, look, I'm not a sort of environmental nurture, flat earther. I am open to the idea that there is physical transmission of traits. In the case of my son's dribbling, I simply don't know what the answer is. Uh, I, I look forward to people discovering whatever it is that needs to be looked into to find that out. Epigenetics is a possibility. Uh, it's, it's only one. It's more a hypothesis than anything. Uh, I think diet's very unlikely to be the case. I, I, who knows? Well, I think it's very unlikely to be coincidence because uh, if, you, if, you, if you talk to any of the people who knew me when I was young, the only thing, apart from my appalling bad behaviour and very poor school performance. Uh, the only thing anybody can remember is the fact that I was, you know, even though I say it myself, quite outstandingly good at dribbling footballs. Now, if you look at my son, it's, again, it's the thing that everybody at his school would say about him, is he's, he is quite remarkable. And it's not only that, he does it in the same way. He actually uses the same gags that I use, uh, which is really weird you know, to see. Um, and what's the importance then of that for, for you? Because it's obviously important for us not to assign that to, to genes. Yes. And what, why is it important? If it's, if it's biological and physically uh, passed over, transmitted, why is it important that it's not genes and that, that it, it could be something else? Well, I merely, I merely... The only reason I do that is to try and convince the audience that I'm not stuck in the idea that it's all nurture. Um, and I'm, I've got an open mind, unlike Robert Plowman, who was asked at the end of that... Guardian article, what he would say if at the end of the day all the studies had been done and it was still impossible to find any genes. He said, I would still believe in heritability, <laughs> which is a statement of faith. It's not a scientific statement. And, and all of us, you know, hands up, you know, all of us have got, have got our axes that we're grinding. Some people here will have, you know, disturbed children who they don't want to be blamed for, of course. I don't want to blame you for it. I want you to say, think about the intergenerational transmission. Just think about what happened to your parents. Think about the poem. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. But they fill you with the fools they had that had some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools that all started hats and coats who half the time so be certain half of the one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf, generations and generations. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself, which is actually a very sly pun because uh, somebody pointed out to me that uh, if you do get out as early as you can during the sexual act, you, you won't have any kids yourself. <laughs> anyway. If you have, say, five generations of a family who one way or another are artists... They all come from one particular line. It, it's not as though um, a father here or, uh, you know, has, has uh, led to this. It, it's all down a female line. Yeah. I mean, is that just chance or no. is it um, because one person affects the next generation? That's what it is. Let me give you an example a client who came to me had a daughter who was tantruming, kicking her, biting her, 
was the daughter from hell. And uh, we got into it, and it turned out that her mother, her grandmother, my client's mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, had all kept diaries and all reported having a daughter just like the one we're talking about. And uh, when we got into it, the diaries also described the ways in which they had caused their daughters to be like this by losing their tempers with them, uh, by becoming like toddlers themselves. And indeed, my client was, you know, when we got into it, had not been able to nurture her very well when she was a baby. Um, so she was a deprived baby. Uh, and then subsequently, when she was three, four, five, had screamed and shouted at her, just as her mother had screamed and shouted at her, just as her grandmother had screamed. And, uh, and what was so interesting was that by using a technique, which I'm not claiming anything too much for, but there's a technique called love bombing that I developed, which is uh, where you take the child away from the family and give it an intense, condensed experience of feeling in control and feeling loved. And you have to completely suspend your normal parenting and the child dictates what happens. Um, during that period, she spotted herself about to start shouting, about to start over-controlling, interfering, and she had to stop herself doing that. And it changed her relationship with her daughter as she went on doing that. Um, of course, it's the love-bombing zone is a kind of special zone. You have to have boundaries in normal life. Of course, there's still that. Um, but she changed the way she related to her daughter. Her daughter stopped tantruming. And I think it's extremely likely that in the next generation, when and if her daughter has a child, a, a girl, she won't do it. Uh, and it was the daughters they did it to, not the sons. Sons, because of the family history and the politics, family politics, sons had a privileged position in this, in this ancestral line. This is the same in all families. In my case, why am I sitting here? I'm sitting here because both my parents were psychoanalysts. They were obsessed with the nature-nurture question. I didn't inherit a gene for obsession with the nature-nurture question. I sat listening to them, debating why all our friends with children were so screwed up. And <laughs> I sat listening to my father, regaling me with tales of his patients. Um, uh, you know, my, both my parents were... You know, fascinated by this um, and horrified by the way, you know, the same as I am by the wider society. Where do I get this from? I think it's nothing to do with gene. Like, it's to do with the way that I ingratiated myself to my parents to some extent. Uh, it's also out of love for them that I also absorbed this and it became part of me and I then run with it myself. My sisters all are therapists, but because none of them was the boy, don't have quite the same perhaps grandiose, pompous arrogance that I have, that means that I have the feeling that I have to tell everyone what I think, which is, you know, quite a ridiculous thing in a way to do, to have the arrogance to do that. Uh, but they, they would never do that. I mean, they perhaps give talks within their professional bodies, but they, they wouldn't want to try and start influencing the public. They wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. I do, because my mother, in fact, was the first columnist on The Observer. She was the first um, sort of um, child care columnist in the history of newspapers back as she... Um, on the observer uh, so that that example was there and that was transmitted to me rather than my sisters in some mechanisms of specific things to do with my relationship with my parents so this is how it works and if you think about your own history if you think about your parents and their grandparents think about your siblings and why you're different from them it all starts to make sense think of yourself as a character in a play 
uh, who's been scripted lines by your childhood history, or think of yourself as a character in a film, you know, what's your backstory, you know? It's, it explains a huge amount if you do that. Okay, so we've got a, in fact, a couple of questions at the back. We can take them both together, I think. Thank you. I listened to the Radio 4 programme and you provoked a quite extraordinary sense of outrage. I just wonder if the, if the academic community is, is split on this or are you rather on your own? Um, it is quite different. Um, I'm wondering what place drugs do have in the treatment of behaviour. Yeah. Well, uh, to, take mental the, illness. Yeah, to take the first question first... Um, Contrary to what was said on that radio programme, which was start the week, Monday before last, uh, the professor there, Marcel Manufo, quite was really quite dishonest. Uh, it's a fact that in 2009, all the leading figures in the, the field of molecular genetics published, a, would, you know, put their names to a paper, uh, which was the main author, was called Manolio, uh, and it was published in Nature, you know, the most distinguished journal. Uh, stating that there is a missing heritability. Now, he tried in that radio programme to brush that off by saying, oh, but that was five years ago. No, in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry, a major journal, only in 2014, there was an editorial saying, what explains the, the, the large gap between findings of twin and adoption studies and molecular genetic findings? What I'm saying at that point in my argument is totally uncontroversial, contrary to what Manufo suggested on that programme. And so I got a little bit sh shirty because he was lying. Um, or, uh, yeah, he was simply just, simply just not telling the truth. And um, uh, I think, of course, it causes outrage in the genetic community because they managed to keep this quiet all this time. And uh, I'm trying to blow the whistle on that. Where it is much more up for grabs, absolutely. It's, everything I'm saying about nurture is up for grabs. I, I maintain there's a huge amount of evidence for it, but other people might argue different. Uh, likewise, of course, the question of what will they find in the future is up for grabs. Uh, but where I, I, I would, you know, I, I can send you the evidence that there is innumerable scientific papers which discuss this problem of missing heritability. Nobody really disputes that that's the case. And in answer to your question, if I started claiming I was Jesus Christ um, in the next sort of ten minutes and you all started giving me funny looks and uh, I clearly became very confused or even more confused than I already am um, and uh, was you know, had a psychotic episode I think I probably would want to be given Largactyl to quiet me down and calm me down. But where I think that drugs are, you know, and I, so, so I'm saying that in, in extremists, drugs have their place. Of course they do. I mean, antidepressants, they're a very complicated story, but I, I, of course there are people who are hugely helped by antidepressants. Um, uh, I, I have taken them in my time. Um, uh, but... As a, what, what I think is deplorable about the present approach to mental illness in this country and the, and the establishment's approach and the way they cleverly use famous people like Stephen Fry, Rory Bremner on ADHD, all sorts of different people to support it, um, is deplorable that they are, they are saying this is a biogenic you know, you know, you know, brain abnormality 
caused by genes that you've got. Forget the idea that you can ever change in any fundamental way. All we can do is offer you drugs to manage the symptoms and CBT, a lastoplast, to try and help you think merrier thoughts. Knowing that CBT does not work, knowing CBT after two years, there's no difference between people who've had CBT and people who haven't. Um, that's what I think is disgraceful. And what's the answer? The answer is very simple. Above all, prevention. Just change the whole structure of society, make it more equal, uh, enable... Not that hard to do. Don't you, we laugh, but, you know, it happened. The Soviet Union just went like that. Don't assume America's still going to go be going on like it is. You know? Don't assume it's all going to go on just like it is. Um, uh, we, we could have Corbyn, in all seriousness. There's going to be a financial crash if it happens on Cameron's watch. People aren't going to be taking the tourist story that their economy is safe with them so seriously. Uh, you know, you, you can have radical change. Let's not forget Thatcherism. It was a massive change. The, it can go the other way too. Um, but, you know, radical change to society that means... And also feminism. The great elephant in the room is nobody's prepared to discuss who's going to look after the babies. So everybody agrees that, that of course, the women should have equal opportunity to, to men. But what about the very large number of women who want to look after their babies and do not want to go back to their often poxy jobs? <laughs> you know, most women have terrible jobs. They're working in Tesco's or whatever. And to a certain extent, a proportion of them like it because of the social life, etc. But an awful lot of women, at least half, would like to spend much more time with their babies and their toddlers than they do. Quite a few men, too. Um, creative <coughs> Austria makes that possible. Uh, why can't we be like Austria? It's not that it's, there aren't any examples of people who do it. You don't have to put them all in daycare, which is definitely not the answer. Um, uh, and so we could change society at that level. In terms of once people have been made mentally ill, um, the kind of therapy you know, that we need to offer, I think we need to be Catholic about that. Uh, by no means would I maintain that the sort of psychoanalytic, psychodynamic therapy is, is the answer. There are many, many... I, I personally have had two five-year... No, one three-year analysis and one four-year analysis when I was in my 20s and 30s, both of which were a total waste of time and money. My God, it was a lot of money and time. I have a, however, I did have a third analysis, which did make a very big difference to me. I also went on the Hoffman process, which, which made a big difference to how I feel about myself and my tendency towards my mother's tendency towards melancholy um, and I would say we need to just be much more, we need to be more American the Americans are damn good at therapy they're really cool at therapy um, and we need, just need to get more and more people who are doing a therapy and I would say the general guidelines if I was the czar, the therapy czar uh, which is never going to happen but if I was what I would say is you need therapies which are going to go into the childhood. You know, CBT explicitly says you mustn't do that. I would say we need to have plenty, you, have, you need to have the time for people to get into the childhood and we need to have uh, enough of a time for the, for the therapist to form a really good relationship with the client so the client feels really looked after and mothered and fathered in the way that they weren't as a child. And I have many clients and they, I, I can speak of you know how much they benefit from that and I'm not but however you know sometimes it's really difficult to change things I'm not saying it's anything can be everything can be sorted out because it can't
Okay, thank you very much, Oliver. I, I'm afraid, I'm, though I'm sure there's plenty of people who would like to ask questions about why or we, why we shouldn't become more and more like America, um, <laughs> uh, we are going to have to finish for the afternoon there. So uh, please, everybody, join me in thanking Oliver James. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.